<laughs> I know I've had a few passengers that have uh, been reading the thing. And they're like, "World's okay as pilot." I was like, "Oh yeah, my flight school got it for me." You know, they're like, "You're not our best, but you're far from our worst." And uh, yeah, you may see a little bit of white knuckle going in as you start taxing. So uh, uh, it's um, no, it's uh, you've got. I think that's the thing you've got to do as well is just yeah, dig for the laughs, man. Like life will try to screw you six ways till Sunday, but it's just yeah, the little things like that that just keep you poking along 100. <laughs> percent G'day guys and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalive, and I'm recording this one from the bunk on the Spirit of Tassie. I'm heading overseas for the first time in a while, but this episode was recorded on Mythica Country out near Batuta. My next guest is Campbell Costello, or Dr. Cozzy, as he's better known. And I want to paint the picture. Myself and Munro, we're driving up to the Territory. We head out to Mount Leonard Station and there's this pilot there. His job is that he flies around Australia, drops into stations and different communities, sees the animals, whether it's for just a general checkup or for emergency surgery. And I reckon that is one of the coolest jobs ever. I'd say Dr. Cozzy would be a mix of maybe Maz Maverick, Dr. Chris Brown, oh, maybe Steve Irwin if he just went off his attire. But it's a cracking conversation. We're sitting there on the side of his plane on the runway at Mount Leonard Station having a yarn about his involvement in agriculture, how he ended up being a vet in Northern Australia, how he ended up being a pilot and flying around, a little bit about his his role with the Mongol Derby, which he has just returned home from. And if you check out our Instagram, we'll have a bit of an intro to Dr. Cozzy and the day we spent with him. But Campbell's story is one of chasing opportunities of dreams. It also has some incredible hardship as he touches on the loss of his father, succession in the family business and the important role that checking in on your mates and in his area the vet industry mental health and mental ill health is a critical issue for them so there is lots of fun lots of laughter but also lots of serious chunks within this podcast and i hope you enjoy it campbell mate the outback traveling vet how are you going i'm very well thank you sir yourself mate i'm going well tell us where are we what what are you doing here? Uh, we're currently on the road slash airstrip of Mount Leonard Station, uh, leaning against beautiful Pip, uh, the Piper Lance. Um, uh, Mount Leonard Station is literally within rock throwing distance of Batuta, the infamous Batuta uh, in the Channel Country um, on the eastern aspects of the Diamantina. Um, and the reason that I'm having a chat with you today is, yeah, the Flying Vet uh, just finished a a sortie, a deployment of sorts in uh, Alice Springs and around Delhi Waters and uh, heading on my way back to uh, my home area of Queensland. Unreal. So whereabouts, like what's your involvement in ag and how, well, I think we're, we're going to get to the stages of how someone becomes a flying vet because it mm -hmm. seems like a pretty cool job. Have you always been in and around agriculture? Yeah, no, I was really um, privileged uh, to be born into into cattle stations. Um, my family uh, had cattle properties near Charters Towers originally, so I was the oldest of four children. Um, yeah, grew up grew up there. Uh, did school the air. Uh, you know, typical sort of upbringing uh, of you know station kids uh, in 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 the more isolated areas of Australia. Um, finished boarding school. Uh, went home to the properties for, for a gap year and then yeah pursued my career in veterinary science and, and studied a veterinary degree in Townsville. What, uh, what was it like growing up out on the station doing school of the air and yeah? Mate, 
fantastic and it's it's often a question i get asked and i'm always a bit stumped because we didn't really know much know anything different but you know reflecting reflecting back and talking to people of a, of a different postcode it is it is pretty special uh, I, we're in the day where your radio got mailed out at you at the beginning uh, of the year and you put it with the mailman you know the mailman being someone that drove out or flew out once twice a week and then you'd you'd send the radio back to school so i remember you know beginning of the school year um, you know, you'd unpack your old HF radio, string the antenna across the tennis court or, or the horse paddock, um, tune her in and, and start doing your lessons. So um, mum was really great, you know, had four kids under 10 in the, you know, in the classroom, um, you know, structuring it like a, like a normal school. Uh, but yeah, you'd, you'd do your lessons and, and sort of manage being on a cattle, cattle property at the same time. So, you know, it was really great. If we had lots of mustering on, you could do two days worth of school, you know, for the week leading up. And then you take a week off and, and, and go out mustering with all the ringers and, and the bush camp. And, oh, you know, it was fantastic. And I think as a young, uh, you know, as, as someone, when you're, when you're that age, you do grow up uh, a little bit quicker in certain regards with responsibility. And, you know, you might only be eight, but... You'd be looking after all the kids in the homestead, keeping an eye out when everyone was coming home, lighting the donkey hot water systems, uh, you know, making sure that they were stoked up for the ringers and, and the bush camp when they came back, you know, running food and water out somewhere, you know, being told to run the plant horses out to a certain area. Um, yeah, no, it, it was fantastic. What age do you reckon you started driving? <laughs> um, oh, we had an old Daihatsu rock and little sort of light four-wheel drive ute thing uh you couldn't kill them and i still remember my first lesson with uh lesson with my father uh you know doing hill starts in a manual um on the way back from pulling a, a windmill apart so um yeah probably would have been at six or seven um you know i remember dating a girl once and saying oh you know when my kids got to a certain age you know i remember getting my first old-timer pocket knife i'd love to give the, them one you know and she's like what age would you be giving children a, a knife? And I was like, oh, like seven or eight, you know, and just, <laughs> and just mortified by it. But, you know, once she came out and saw where I was from, she could sort of understand it a little bit more, like, you know, firearm safety at a young age, you know, involved in aviation at a young age. Um, you know, you were given a two-way radio and, uh, you know, you'd be out mastering with all, the, with all the stockmen and it was expected of you to perform to the, you know, the level of an adult. I know they did a case study on a lot of the... Um, a lot of the station kids going to boarding school, you know, I was lucky. I went to Nudgee in Brisbane. Um, and often the teachers used to think, oh, these bush kids, they're, they're bits of, God, they're little lippy bastards. Um, you know, really? They're, they're, really? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, um, you know they'd, they'd tell teachers, oh, but I'm the adult here. And they'd be like, I don't care. You know, they'd give it back a little bit. There was always sometimes a bit of clash of culture. And, um, yeah, they sent some uh, some teachers out onto these onto these stations and they were like, holy shit, this kid's like 13, 14 and, you know, driving a truck and, you know, or in charge of watering the horses somewhere or, you know, running a bush camp sort of thing and, and, and going like, oh, well, I've, I've been talking to them condescendingly in, in a classroom yeah. uh, when, you know, out here they're expected to, you know, you're, you're a young adult and the responsibility is, is of one. So, um, yeah, no, that was, and that was definitely something that, you know, transitioning from school of the air and going to, to boarding school was... Yeah, that was one of the things to go like, you know, you just you're just not out in the out in stock camp anymore. Yeah, you can't just tell. Do you remember teacher. that like that first time you you had left home and had headed off to boarding school? Do you remember what it was like? Yeah, no, I definitely remember what it was like. You know, and um, you, you're like, wow, there's girls and didn't really know much about them, or like you know, people <laughs> that weren't your siblings to like play football with 
um, and stuff like that. Like, I, I really enjoyed it, you know, the challenge and learning new stuff and being exposed to things. I was very fortunate that I started boarding school in Charters Towers. And then my last two years, I went to Brisbane. You know, Brisbane was two, two days' drive from home. Uh, so we drive all day in the car, stay at Roma, and then the next day, wake up in Roma and drive to Brisbane and get dropped off at school. And then mum and dad, or just mum, would drive two days home and, you know, we'd see him at the end of semester. Uh, I'd, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember being definitely a bit of fish out of water and like, you know, kids talking about, you know, drinking and like, you know, pop culture and you're like, I, I have no idea what these references, you know, are, are about or, you know, what dressing fashionably meant or, any, <laughs> or anything like this. It was like, what, I can't wear rugby shorts and, and, and volleys everywhere. So, but there was always a group of like these station kids that were there going through the same sort of growth uh, um, and being off the dunghill as well. So we sort of could huddle together. I remember going to Brisbane, you know, Nudgy was 1,700 kids. I knew no one and, and rocking up there and uh, yeah, shitting myself a little bit. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I loved it in the end, you know, made plenty of friends and it just expanded my my horizons and set me up for you know my career in veterinary medicine and and uh, you know and and an illustrious one that's been at that that's for sure. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think jumping into the vet piece was was it always the draw card for you? Was it life's ambitions? <laughs> I, I always sound like a bit of a bit of a dick when I say not really. Like it was one thing on the horizon. Um, you know, uh, I was looking at apprenticeships in Mount Isa in the mines, are so quite lucrative and, uh, and, and supportive. Uh, there was a lot of opportunity there. Um, I wanted to, I was considering being a helicopter pilot or a pilot of some sort. There was always a, you know, a subtle interest in, in aviation uh, that I think blossomed as I got a bit older. Uh, you know, and that was due, you know, dad flew, um, both my grandparents flew, uh, grandfa grandfathers flew. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that definitely planted that seed. And then sort of veterinary science, you know, I just didn't think I'd be good enough to get in. You know, I was just some some mongrel out in the bush that, you know, had, had learned to spell and do some maths. And <laughs> I, uh, I did my application for James Cook University in Townsville and um, it went really well. And before I knew it, I was offered a... Um, I was offered a, a position, the inaugural year, the first ever one they'd done of agri ag undergraduate veterinary medicine at James Cook in Townsville. And yeah, I got in and, and somehow somehow passed. So yeah, it was sort of something that, you know, really fell in my lap in that regard. You know, it was a bush vet school that wanted kids from the bush and, and, and wanted to pursue that, um, you know, more than just the plain old academia that a lot of the other veterinary universities were, were looking for. Cause you know, uh, we were seeing a veterinary shortage in the bush when I started that journey 17 years ago. Yeah. Um, and that's continued to get, you know, extrapolated now into more urban postcodes as well. So yeah, the veterinary, the veterinary industry is in a bit of, a bit of strife as we say, but yeah, it was one of the things that I always thought of. And I remember on the station, like seldomly, like, you know, we'd have a sick mare or, you know, uh, we'd take the dogs into town, you'd have to see the vet and, um, yeah, I just never really thought, wow, I'm going to be one of those one day, you know, oh, I'm, I'm academic or, or good enough to be there. And, and weirdly enough, I got in and, you know, it sort of, yeah, it was, um, I was one of the first people in my family to get a tertiary education. So, um, you know, in the North Queensland sector of our family and yeah, I guess, uh, sort of paved the way and was venturing into an area of unknown. And since then, one of my sisters is a vet as well. Okay. My brother's a diesel fitter in Mount Isa. And um, uh, one of my other sisters, she's a, a regional nurse in, uh, in Alice Springs. Huh, you guys have gone everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, but you know, everyone pursued. It was something that my family 
you know, my both my parents had experienced the, you know, beef recessions, um, you know, and seen good and bad times come. And they said, you know, make sure you get educated or a trade behind you. Um, if you do, if you do come back, or you know, if something happens, you've always got something to fall back onto. And that, weirdly enough, has been very helpful in the progression forward. Yeah, tell me on on the vet front because we were chatting before, which was really interesting. Just the the, the challenges of actually being a vet you, you mentioned there just around um, the, yeah, the, the number of vets out in the bush, it, it, it's really struggling, but also then there's a whole um, mental health side of things as well. You mentioned the suicide rates. Yeah, look, um, you know, veterinary medicine is, is been in a bad way and, um, you know, it's been like that for a, for a long time. Like, you know, as I said, when I started my journey 17 years ago, um, you know, we said, oh, look, if you're here to make money, probably go to the medicine school, don't study vet. Um, you know, and be careful, the burnout rate and the suicide is reasonably high. Uh, as I said, five years uni later, um, you know, I graduated and, um, you know, I was on 40 grand a year. Yeah. Um, you know, people often think that uh, vets do well because our, our fees, uh, our, our veterinary fees are high. Um, <coughs> our veterinary fees are high, but, you know, that's a sequali to, you know, not, um, compensate, you know, it's not compensated or funded by uh, federal or state governments, say, like Medicare. Um, you know, you have to pay full fare. So, you know, if we wanted to pay ourselves a reasonable wage, like a high wage, um, you know, that would mean, would extrapolate to high fees at the tills. So it's a really, it's a delicate sort of thing that we've got to, we've got to, you know, manage to, to try and get paid well. Um, yeah, the mental, the mental health side of it's, you know, is massive. Like, normally, um, you know, there's no five on, five off, you know, you're on call. And if you're on call through the evening and there's a caesarean that gets done, you're, you're back at uni, uh, sorry, you're back at work, you know, at seven, eight o'clock in the morning. So the burnout and, and the fatigue is, is massive, but the suicide is quite a sobering statistic. We're, we're the highest in the world. We're double doctors. In Australia. And the UK and the United States. It's reflected all across, you know, globally. Um, but in Australia, we're four times more likely than the average Australian to take our life. Uh, we are double dentists and doctors. We are the highest, and and I bury a friend every sort of twelve weeks on on average. So, you know, we've got a we've, so we've got a multiple things happening where, you know, thirty. I think the statistics about thirty thirty eight percent of um, vets leave within three years of graduating. Um, Fifty percent of vets have left by about uh, five years out. So if, if it doesn't kill them, they leave pretty quickly to pursue another job, you know, got to get that house deposit, got to make, got to get ahead financially. You know, veterinary science is, is, a, is a tough one to try and do that. Um, and then obviously with people, you know, taking their lives, it's, it's making it worse. So, you know, that's why I fly not only to, you know, permeate into the, into the bush and get out onto cattle stations and do work there, but um, to, to get to clinics, you know, not just in the bush anymore, in, in cities and, and large towns uh, to get vets in there because, you know, it's not uncommon to go to a clinic. Like, oh, I worked at a clinic, for example, in Dubbo a couple of months ago. It was a six-week wait to get your dog vaccinated and it was about two months to get them spayed. If you weren't a client already, it was closed accounts. Like, you, you couldn't just rock up to that clinic as a new client and get booked in there. They just, they couldn't absorb it. Another thing that we've seen happen as well during COVID, 1.8 million pets have been acquired by people. You know, they didn't go overseas. Yeah, really? They got pets. Yeah, it was substantial. Bloody hell. So there, there is some boom growth there, but there's less and less vets to, to sort of absorb that. So, you know, I guess 
I'm sick of having that narrative of going, oh God, you know, another vet's dead or another vet's gone. And, you know, I often struggle whether I'm going to stay in it forever. Um, you know, I guess that sort of is the segue to the next narrative is, well, what do we do? I think, you know, mm. a few things I'd like to see is, man is managing expectations with clients. Like I was just in the Northern Territory uh, for Territory Day a couple of days ago, you know, and I'll see people walk in and spend four, five, six hundred bucks on fireworks, no questions asked, you know, for, for five minutes of blowing shit up. Um, you know, like a cheap show bag of, of fireworks in, in Alice Springs would knock you back about $125 and people would buy those things hand over fist. Wouldn't, no questions asked. Come down, you know, that was the fireworks shop, you know, near 300 metres from our clinic. So 125 bucks for a bag of fireworks that's expended in five, ten minutes if you go flat rip. Or you come down the road to ours, it's about, about the same price and you get your dog vaccinated against some deadly diseases for, for 12 months. People all hand over their money for the fireworks, no worries, won't even think about it. But the veterinary fee, people just, oh, you know, this is exorbitant, you know. We're used to Medicare covering the bill in the human sector. Um, so, yeah, I think I think managing that, making sure people have done their due diligence, if they've got pets that, you know, yeah, they are expensive. Um, and, and having a credit card or having, I think, uh, pet insurance, really do your due diligence and look at that, you know, because I, I, it's also... You know, so, so you can afford when, when your dog gets sick, you know, hit by a car or a dog bitten by a snake, that's three to five grand just there. You know, that's just covering our costs of antivenine. That stuff is not cheap and I, I can't give it away for goodwill. You know, I've got a mortgage to pay and I can't go, hey, Commonwealth Bank, old mates had my fees were too high. Um, I did it for free. Is that all right with you? Mm. You know, they, they, I'm, I'm going to default on my mortgage. So, yeah, just making sure people understand uh, understand that and go a little bit easy on us. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a really... It's a shitty situation to find yourself when you're you're euthanizing someone's pet. They're quite upset, and and the animal could have been saved, but financially it just wasn't feasible. Them being able to have a crack, you know. So if if your dog or cat or horse is insured, you know that means that we can do a lot for you for for a small for a small cost. You know, I I have recently got a dog. Um, yeah, he's he's from Fink, uh, Indigenous community between Alice Springs and Oonadatta in the middle of the um, southern part of the Simpson Desert. And um, yeah, he ran up to me one day, jumped in the plane, no one owned him, and came back with me with Queensland. He is insured. <laughs> and people go, but you're the vet, your dog's insured. Yeah. I was like, absolutely. And exactly in the last what I was eight- thinking we've been over there at Henry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in the last eight months, he has cost me about $4,500 in orthopedic procedures. He broke his toe. I went to go put a little plate in there. The plate's worth thousands of dollars just on its own. Huh. Um, you know, but my insurance mean that I've probably spent less than 800 bucks. So, yeah, I really, um, I really recommend people, you know, have, have a look and go there because, you know, it's going to make our businesses more profitable. Hopefully, you know, if we can pay people better and give them more time off, um, you know, A will stop us dying and B, we can just have a bit more retention because there's a lot of, there's a lot of towns that, you know, have been used to having veterinary services that might not have it much longer. You know, yep. Mount Isa's just up the road. One of the vets up there just had a baby. Uh, there is now one clinic uh, servicing that entire city, you know, of, of 25,000 people. So, yeah, well. you know, we've seen that with the doctor shortage and, you know, people going, oh, God, you can't get a doctor or you get hurt out in the bush, you know, the RFDS or you drive a long way to, to get to a hospital. You know, the veterinary sector's staring down that barrel at the moment. It's why I, I own a house in Townsville, but I use this bad girl to, you know, across the Territory, you know, back into the Kimberley, through SA, you know, Northern New South Wales and Queensland, you know, up the peninsula, you know, covering such a great area because they just can't get anyone.
How do you look after yourself? Because I think it's an interesting conduit to... Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Like chatting about everything from the mental health perspective to like you're you're pulling some huge hours yes. from a work front, you're covering the whole of Australia, you're flying <laughs> around the place. Like how, how, how do you look after yourself when you're out and about? Uh, great question and you know it, it's definitely something that I'm I'm survived 12 years thus far but yeah I'm not immune to this problem and it's something I keep an eye on I had a tough week there the other day in the NT had a case and you know the guy couldn't afford it and um, the dog had smashed some bones in an accident and yeah we had to put that that animal to sleep and yeah seeing a grown man weep is is something that yeah that got me and i do need to take time off i think that's where the aviation compartment of my job really speaks volumes you know like i get in this and i don't really have to think about vet you know i turn my phone on silent i put my little um my headset on and i'm i'm pilot cozy today i'm, I'm not the vet um you know, so, you know, they talk about human factors and sure, aviation being a pilot exhausts you, but for me, it's really refreshing. Um, and I just try and schedule as much, you know, little snippets of, of time off that I can get, you know, and really rest and recharge um, because, yeah, it, there is some, some heavy lifting to do. And, um, you know, with death and burnout and stuff, I've got to be careful, you know, um, my family, we're from Charters Towers. Um, we've got properties there, you know, dad was, dad was killed on a horse, uh, mustering just under three years ago. And that was massive, massive amounts of, you know, uh, mental anguish and, and sadness and, and mourning. So yeah, I, it, a, a shitty accident that was, I call it the gift of perspective and it made me grow. And one of those big growth areas was like, Cozzy, make sure you're on it when it comes to, you know, trying to keep your finger on the pulse when you're, when you're running low. Yeah. How did, tell me like about that. Did when your old man passed away, did you think of heading heading back home? Like it was a freak accident, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, mum and dad went mustering. So uh, we've got a property on the Burdekin River just out of Charters Towers. Um, uh, dad had his accident on uh, the 9th of the 9th, 2019. So a bit of, ooh, a bit of weirdness. Um, mm. So 2019, that was the year that all those cattle, um, you know, Julia Craig, Cloncurry, we saw the footage where those massive floods just piled cattle in their thousands and, and drowned them. Um, so there was a lot of rivers uh, running running higher than normal, not dirty, not flooding, flowing quickly, just high, just yeah. draining all that all that moisture. Um, so yeah, the Burdekin was it wasn't flowing uh, hard or dirty; it was just a bit higher than normal. A lot of silt, and uh, yeah, and you know, Dad was born there on that property. Uh, you know, that's where the old stock route is. Like yeah, there, it wasn't something that he wasn't used to. Um, and it's something that, you know, my brother and I and my siblings had done as kids, you know, walked across it with jerry cans of diesel on our shoulders to go start a pump or swum a horse ourselves on our own, you know, and think nothing of it. But, 
yeah, they were just going to cut out some um, spade cows and calves, and uh, yeah, dad dad got into strife on the horse, and um, yeah, he drowned unfortunately. So, uh, which you know, mum was there with him, which was traumatic because she had to watch it. But you know, as I tried to remind her, I was like, you know, we we found him because you were there, so that made it a lot better. Um, you know, it was good for us with with closure and stuff there. So. So yeah, I remember getting a, a phone call from my brother late that night. I was working at a veterinary clinic in New South Wales and just said, oh, dad's had an accident, yada, yada. You know, he's gone. And yeah, sort of that, that just like, you know, we went, it wasn't like a, you know, a palliative disease or, you know, chronic disease that, you, you know, you knew that was coming. It was sort of a pretty knee jerk, like, bang, you're dealing with this now. So um, yeah, I'm sure some of your listeners and yourself are no stranger to succession planning and stuff. Um, we didn't really have much in place and then all of a sudden, you know, that's thrust on you. So it's definitely been a, a bit of a, it's been a rocky road and it is, a, it is a really difficult thing. But if there is someone listening now um, that, you know, they're either in charge, if, if they're the, the keeper of the fortress of the, of the empire, please sit down with your kids please you know drop your expectations listen to everyone make sure every everyone can go hey this is my vision it might sound silly just listen to me don't you know don't have expectations that this is the algorithm that the next generation has to follow you've got to sit down and have a chat mm. um, because you know unfortunately dad will not be sitting in, in these narratives anymore with what he you know i'm the fifth generation that on that cattle station dad's not going to be sitting at that long table to to have that narrative which is which is sad um, so yeah, if there is anyone at home that is in that difficult place, have the narrative. It will be uncomfortable, but you know, do it while you can because yeah, I speak from experience to go. It's just, it's a shitty thing anyway. Twenty six percent of farms go through six succession planning, so three out of four fail and go nasty. Um, you know, it's not an easy thing. The the odds are against us, but do it properly. I I, I am lucky in my job that I go to stations where they've done it properly. And it's been a it's been a it's been a a difficult task, but they're they're reaping the rewards on it, and and you know the dynasty and it continues, the legacy continues. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. I think the amount of mates that I know that I speak to that have yeah either wish they hadn't have gone home and had just gone off and managed a place or something like that because like what it does to the relationships through really, it, like it's pretty sad. A hundred percent, you know, like. You know, I speak from experience and, and, and rhetorically what I've spoken to other people as well, you know, like you stay at home, as you say, and, and it taints the relationship or you go away and you're sort of gaslit, you know, or you go away because you're like, I want to grow as a person. I've got a career. I want to see how different things are done and bring ideas back. And, and then it's like, oh, well, you know, you, you left and you're like, well, I feel like it's sort of, yeah, it's you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And. But these, these decisions, I believe, they're emotional ones. And, you know, yeah. I think from what I can see, you know, well, this is the way that I've done it and, and this is the way it needs to continue. And I, I disagree. Agriculture is not immune to innova innovation and change. Um, and, and we need to, you know, we need to, as an industry, stay ahead of the game and be proactive and make sure our consumers like the products that we uh, we create. You know, like me going on the cattle stations, I go into some stations now that may not have had a vet there in 30 years. And it's good because we're out and about. We might be the first ones to see foot and mouth, for example, right on our footstep. Yep. So people go, oh, I'm spending money on, on, on bloody preg testing. This is bullshit. I'm like, you are also investing in, in surveillance for stuff. But, mm. you know, all, not just that, you know, the social licensing to go like, well, you know, we're a business producing beef 
or a primary product um, and, and, and we're invo uh, investing in our social licensing to go, there's a vet that turns up, man. We're, yep. we're not some just Yahoo operation. You know, we, we're, we're doing a good job. So, um, yeah, uh, that, that is my concern sometimes that, you know, we need these young, the younger people to come in and let's not forget about the old times and, and build off that experience. But, you know, uh, my, my colloquialism is this, we've seen how many iPhones have come out in the last decade how quickly they're changing all the time you know so that's how quickly technology and the world changes mm. we've got to make sure that ag does something as well otherwise we're just going to fall behind yeah absolutely i've got a question on that and it's actually today's podcast that i released with ned hannigan his question um and we'll come to one for you but like if you could change a, a perception of agriculture within the broader community what per perception would you change what perception would I change? Um, oh, I think, um, yeah, that is, that is an interesting one because I think there's a few things. But, I, you know, like there was always one I reckon, you know, oh, you know, you'd go down to the pub and meet some pretty little thing. They'd be like, oh, you're on a station. I love McLeod's daughters. Oh, that'd be... <laughs> and you're like, hearty, mate, that's, we're not going to be wearing cream moleskins, you know. <laughs> we're going to be, you know, covered in flies and, and shooting cattle in the droughts during good times and, yeah, getting flogged by sand flies during the wet seasons, putting up uh, creek crossings in the good times. Um, I think what I'd like to see is, um, you know, ag seen as um, as a really progressive, progressive industry. I think that is one thing that, you know, society and, and our consumers have on us is they're like, oh, these yahoos are just doing whatever and, you know, cattle are bad for the environment and overgrazing and, you know, they're just flogging it out for, for their own checkbook so they can buy a new Land Cruiser. I think that's one thing that I'd like to see, and I think we need to we need to continue doing that. And maybe I'm biased, but from a veterinary's perspective, yeah, getting your cattle preg tested. If you've got a cow that keeps coming in empty, why are you pouring food down her neck, and why is she out eroding your soil and eating your grass when she can, you know, turn into a meat patty? Or she's the one that's strong during the the dry times, flogging the little skinny the little skinny cow out of the out of the way for the lick and and the good pasture. Um, you know, having data, understanding, you know, well, doing your food budgets, you know, like rather than having to wait for a buyer bale to, to save your ass, going like, well, how many mouths do I need to feed and how much food do I have out there and being able to mitigate to go, it will not rain. And, and, what, and what does that look like um, rather than getting to a point where, you know, it looks like this airstrip here, not a blade of grass and you know, the horses bolted and, you know, the people that are sitting there cross-armed going, oh, I didn't like agriculture already and, and he proves me right. So I yeah. think that's what I'd like to see and, and I am seeing it. I don't, I'm not saying that we're not seeing that in ag, but, yeah, just continual innovation and just bringing in the new stuff and saying, like, I'm not just old Cletus out the back with an <laughs> over and under shotgun, you know, shooting magpie keys and not brushing my teeth. It's like, no, we sit down, we, we make objective decisions and, and this is a business. It's not just something, it's not McLeod's daughters. This is a functioning business with data and objective decision making and, um, you know, involving, you know, nutritionists, vets, um, accountants, you know, and, and you, you know, you're at the coalface ringers as well and making sure that all of those things are, are woven into the tapestry that makes agriculture so great. Yeah, love it. I um, yeah, couldn't agree more. I think positioning, like, it is an incredibly progressive industry, but I think one thing that kind of driving through here, it just shows just how broad it is and diverse and how quickly things change too, just between hundreds of kilometres, like. Exactly, and you know, 
there isn't there isn't going to be a one size fits all uh, for for that journey either. You know, I can't tell someone that runs a fattening operation on the Darling Downs. Um, you know, I can't give someone. Uh, you know, I can't give them a, a product or consultancy advice. Yep. You know, and then expect to roll that out out here. You know, it, it is very different. But I think there's some um, there's some fundamentals that are the same. And yeah, you know, as I said, you know, from a veterinary a vet's perspective, well, every time, you know, why just get me out to preg test when you need a certificate to put animals on the boats? Can we, you know, I know mustering and doing rounds, it, it, it's hectic, man. Like you, you're managing stock camps and choppers and and getting road trains sorted and hay and, you know, let alone if you've got a family, but, you know, just making sure, well, let, let's make sure we've got data and we, you know, we know that, why is this, why, why is 30% of my herd given a, a free feed year in, year out because they just never give us the calf? And I just yeah. blame it and go, oh, it's the neighbours pinching the clean skins, you know, or bloody snake bites this year have been up. And it's like, actually, no, there, there's a problem here and we can, you know, with investing in that stuff, you can make a difference. Uh, righto, last two questions I've got for you. Um, what's next for you? <laughs> where, where are you going? Where are you headed once you uh, take off out of Batuta? Uh, out of Batuta today, what's next in the short term? Uh, going to Longreach for pleasure. Yeah. Uh, catching up with some veterinary colleagues there and just having a moment, um, you know, <laughs> talking about that, that recharging, you know. Yep. Sometimes I like flying, you know, last time I flew into Longreach, I landed on some bloke's bloody driveway next to his mailbox and blood tested a heap of cattle and preg tested some heifers and then ripped out of there again. Uh, at least this time I'll get to actually, you know, pull up and and just sort of stare at the stare at the horizon for a little bit. Uh, returning back home to, to Townsville, I bought a house there, but I've spent about four days in it. So I should probably <laughs> remind myself what that looks like. Um, I've got a stint in Mongolia in a couple of weeks. I'm really lucky I do the uh, Mongol Derby, the world's longest horse race. So yeah. I rode, this will be my 10 year, a bit special 10 year reunion, because, well, not with other riders, but my reunion with Mongolia. So 10 years ago, I rode the Derby as a rider and then I returned every year as a vet. So um, yeah, a thousand kilometers on Mongolian horses across Mongolia. Incredible. Uh, uh, so yeah, going back to, to vet that in a couple of weeks. Um, as, so that's my short term, long term, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I do have a passion for veterinary advocacy, uh, to make sure that, you know, we can start saving some lives. Um, you know, as I said, uh, my experience, you know, losing my father in such a freak accident, you know, the sorrow that continues, you know, like uh, what our family went through is just devastating. Uh, but we couldn't really prevent that. Like that was just a freak accident was going to happen. I, I I really get upset when every 12 weeks there's a family like mine that goes through the exact same stuff just because we couldn't pay people better and give them more time off and we've just got bad awareness. So I think long term I'll do a lot of that. Um, and yeah, I really enjoy my aviation, so who knows? I have considered becoming a Royal Flying Doctor pilot, but <laughs> I yeah. might have to put a bit of spit polish on my procedures. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't talk like uh, can't talk like some bushfella over the radio when I'm doing that. So, um, so yeah. Uh, Cos, um, I've got one other question we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Yes. You get the chance to go uh, go back to high school and chat with Year 10 students. What would be your advice to them around why they should consider a career in agriculture? What, what would I say to a Year 10 student? Um, career in ag. Well, I'd probably be talking to someone like myself, and I'd probably be telling them to sit the hell down and stop being a little shit. Um, <laughs> You know, <laughs> no, no, we said year ten, not thirty. <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. Grow old, not up. Um, 
I think there, you know, I think there is, you know, we need, it is going to be a rewarding career, uh, circling back to innovation. We need, you know, the average age of landowners in Australia is sitting at about 62, I, I believe, at the moment. So, yeah, we need these young people to come through and we need your know-how um, and how to go, uh, you know, and, and bring in the new stuff. My biggest advice is... Um, you know, similar to myself, oh, I'm not good enough for vet school or, or not good enough to study. Um, no, turn up. 90% of success is turning up. You know, everyone else sits there and talks themselves out of it. It's, 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 it's all about being there and showing up. That's what, that's what gets success. So, you know, you might be a year 10 kid that's like, oh, I've only grown up in the inner city suburbs of Brisbane. You know, what would a cattle station want to do with me? Yeah, they'd probably rip the piss out of your accent for a bit. <laughs> you'd be a bit of a green stick, but... I and and but they're probably going to be a you know they're going to have a tougher induction than say myself that was born into it with privilege but they're still going to because of that tougher pressure cooker if they stick with it um, they'll they'll do far and they'll grow and they'll become a, a, a strong person um, and I, I think you can succeed in that and it's just so diverse you know you can be you might want to just be the ringer in the stock camp or a station manager you might want to get into aviation. You know, you might want to get a nutrition, like, you know, there's jobs with the land council, there's, you know, even in northern Queensland where we used to just be cattlemen, you know, we're growing crops up there now. Like, there, there is so much change and we, there's people growing, the population's growing, people need to eat. Um, yeah, come on over. There's always, a, I think there's plenty of room at the table, that's for sure. Absolutely. Bloody hell. Um, one final one. Uh, my guests get the chance to ask a future guest a question. So... I feel like you'd just come off with something that would be bloody hilarious. Um, oh, but what's a question that you'd like me to pose to a future guest at some stage? A question <laughs> to a future guest. Oh, God, now you've got me. Um, um, a future question. Okay, because this would be something uh, uh, that I'd ask myself. Um, if you were speaking to yourself at your high school graduation, would you tell them to do anything differently? Or would you stick with what you've done? And I'm going to ask you that right now, your question. Would you? As much as I get down about veterinary science and it's, you know, it's almost brought about my demise a few times, like just being burnt out, I think I would have, I think I would have stuck with it. Yeah, definitely. Like, look at where we are. Look at what we're doing now. You know, that's, I've got to remind myself that that's all a sequali to, to becoming a vet. I probably would have just said, hey, um, just expect a little bit of, of tougher resistance, you know, it will be a bit of a flogging, um, and, but that's okay. Yeah, don't be gaslit, exactly. Um, yeah, Diamonds yeah. are made under pressure, Cozzy. What's that, sorry? Diamonds are exactly, made under pressure. Exactly, exactly. Even rough ones count, so yeah. that's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I like your hat, world's bravest pilot, Cozzy. It's been funny. World, world's okayest. <laughs> okayest, I Oh, oh mediocre, mediocrity. That's my middle name. So. <laughs> I know. I've had a few passengers that have uh, been reading the thing. And they're like, "Well, it's okay as pilot." I was like, "Oh yeah, my flight school got it for me." You know, they're like, "You're not our best, but you're far from our worst." And uh, yeah, you may see a little bit of white knuckle going in as you start taxing. So uh, uh, it's um, no, it's uh, you've got. I think that's the thing you've got to do as well is just. Yeah, dig for the laughs, man. Like life will try to screw you six ways till Sunday, but it's just yeah, the little things like that that just keep you poking along a hundred percent. Life's too short and fragile to be serious, that's for sure. Well, Gozzy, it's been bloody fun and uh, no, nice pleasure. to meet you out here in Batuta. Yeah, lovely to have you. Great to take you for a fly and have a chat for five seconds. And I'm sorry to your listeners that won't get the last thirty minutes of their life. Back. 
Well, girls, thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't, jump over to our Instagram and you can check out our whole uh, highlights of Cozzy up in his plane, having a yarn with him, and even the little new intro that he gave us as well as part of the podcast. The other part that you can do, if you prefer to watch the podcast, jump over to YouTube, search Humans of Agriculture. And when we're doing these face-to-face podcasts, we're now recording them in person, throwing them on our YouTube channel. So if you want to see what these people look like, see what happens kind of behind the scenes as we're recording, jump on over there and check them out. Look after yourselves. Stay safe. Stay sane. We can't wait. See you next week.